0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, March 29th. We begin with reaction to the release of the 2023 federal budget. We speak with Megan Reed, Executive Director of Vibrant Communities Calgary, for her thoughts on whether the budget effectively addresses affordability issues in Canada, and specifically here in Calgary.
1: A large portion of the new budget focuses on the investment in green technology. We discuss what sort of an impact the announcement will have on the monthly utility bills of average Canadians with Francis Bradley, CEO of Electricity Canada.
0: And finally, earlier this week, Russia revealed plans to station tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. We get the latest on the war in Ukraine from Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute.
1: According to Ipsos polling ahead of the federal budget, addressing the soaring cost of everyday living was the top priority for Canadians. So, did yesterday's budget have any meaningful measures to address the affordability issue? Well, joining us to talk about it this morning is Megan Reed, Executive Director of Vibrant Communities Calgary. Good morning, Megan. Thanks morning. for coming into the studio. Hey. Appreciate it. Uh, Interested on your take, but uh, we'll get to that in one sec. First off, tell us a little bit about Vibrant Communities Calgary and your organization.
2: Absolutely. So Vibrant Communities Calgary is responsible for uh, implementing Calgary's poverty reduction strategy. So our goal is to meaningfully reduce poverty in this city by changing the systems that hold poverty in place.
0: Okay. And I know you've not had, uh, you know, days but hours to look at the results that were released yesterday in the document. So, in your opinion, uh, from through the eyes of your organization, are there meaningful measures included that will help Calgarians in need?
2: So we see several. Um, moderate or mild measures that are in this budget to help affordability for Canadians, but we're quite unsure at this point about how that rolls up into a meaningful um, reduction in terms of what people are paying these days, and we know that people are under incredible financial strain. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, we just heard in Tony's news uh, Betty Jo Kaiser talking from the Food Bank, right? Yes, it's lovely to to double up the GST, but it's a one-time payment, and it's for a certain amount of the population, and once that money is done, what more help is there? Is is that sort of what you're meaning?
2: Absolutely. So when it comes to the uh, what they're calling the grocery rebate, which is really that GST, top-up again that we've seen before, if you're a single person, you need to be um, under about a $50,000 threshold a year to get that, and, and that's pretty low as it is. Mm-hmm. The other challenge with it is that it's a one-time payment. So that's going to help somebody for a month, potentially, to help offset some bills, maybe groceries, maybe things like rent. Um, but what are they going to do after that? And I think that's really the challenge. There's some one-time measures in this budget that aren't going to really help people in the long term. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what more, if you were in the driver's seat when it comes to, to budgeting uh, with vibrant communities, Calgary needs to be done by the federal government to address the soaring cost of living and support those? who uh, have to uh, make ends meet. Because we talked about the, the GST top-up. But what more needs to be done if you could lay it out?
2: Absolutely. So there's a couple of things in there I will point out that, that are good. Things like looking at automatic tax filing for people in low income um, and things like capping the criminal um, rate of interest at 30%. What we were disappointed in and what we would want to see is way more measures in terms of affordable housing. In Calgary, we're at a, a vacancy rate of under 3% mm-hmm. and costs have soared over 30%. There's not much in this budget. Uh, that wasn't there in the last budget in terms of helping unlock affordable housing supply. We'd also want to see things in terms of income support reform, things like EI, because uh, the measures and the numbers that that are given to low-income Canadians are not near uh, enough to meet their basic needs anymore, and those numbers aren't changing fast enough for people.
1: Were you pleased with the dental plan? So, I mean, that's something that will definitely help low-income Calgarians, Albertans, Canadians as a whole. But again, it's, it's not enough. But were you pleased with that, at least as a start?
2: Yes, it was great to see the acceleration of that dental plan. So they sort of past the first step, they went to the second step, which means that uninsured Canadians will be able to access dental benefits. Um, and that's about 9 million Canadians that are uninsured. And we know that uh, having good teeth at a really basic level leads to better health outcomes. So that was positive. Um, that's going to keep uh, money in people's pockets, but maybe they weren't going to that, spend that initially. I think it allows people to access that healthcare and that's fantastic. Um, so we were pleased with that measure.
0: I want to ask you about, you know, what I would call the perfect storm. And it's interesting. I, I believe the time you've been with Vibrant Community is almost like almost four years, right? Yep. So you probably got your uh, in, in your role just before the pandemic. Now, here we are. Uh, have you seen anything like this? I know you've worked in public service the majority of your career, if not your entire career, mm. where it's not just one thing, not just uh, one hurdle, but so many.
2: Yeah, I've worked in nonprofit for about 20 years and I have never seen anything like this. There's a level of desperation and panic in community that I've never seen before. And that's just not among the lowest income Calgarians. That is people who are in mm-hmm. middle income. So before we used to hear a lot from people who couldn't make their rent in an affordable house. And now we're hearing about people who cannot meet their mortgage payments and are threatened by eviction. This is a really serious thing. We know that more than 50% of Canadians lose sleep every night because of their finances and it's leading to anxiety and depression. In Calgary alone, though, it is that perfect So food, we hear one in five Albertans are food insecure. If we look at soaring energy costs that people can't anticipate or budget for, rent that is going up 30%, this is all contributing to uh, people just not being able to make ends meet. So we're seeing trade-offs. I'm going to pay my rent uh, this month, but I'm not going to eat. And that is a story that we're hearing a lot these days. Yeah, we've even heard that on the text line. You know, somebody saying, I I make sure my
1: wife and my kids have food, but I I skip today. Yeah. So, I mean, what what do we do? We're all kind of in a, you know, in a different position perhaps, but we're all in the thick of it. What do we do moving forward?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, the first thing I would encourage governments to do is to step back and seriously reevaluate. We need to make sure we're getting income in people's pockets sooner than later because it's really expensive to service poverty down the road. Um, somebody who is houseless, it's about $100,000 a year pull on services, right? So think about that. It's way uh, more efficient and effective and kind to actually help people who live in poverty now. Um, but for people who might be in this situation, I would absolutely encourage them to call 2 on one or to reach out for support. One of the things that's happening right now is that a lot of people are feeling some of that, uh, some self stigma or some shame maybe about calling the food bank about asking for assistance, mm-hmm. because it might be very new to them. I think that's happening for a lot mm-hmm. of Calgarians. Yeah. Um, please reach out for support sooner than later. There are supports out there to help you get you through this time.
0: Megan, thanks for your time this morning. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your thoughts. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. Megan Reed, Vibrant Communities Calgary, Executive Director. More online of on what they do at vibrant, uh, VibrantCalgary.com
1: green technology clean technology that seemed to be the focus of yesterday's federal budget so this morning we're getting some reaction uh, on the federal budget and the news from within it and talking about the state of green technology in canada joining us for the conversation this morning francis bradley ceo of electricity canada good morning to you francis thanks for joining us
3: well, good morning, Sue and Andy.
1: What did you think of the budget yesterday in terms of clean, clean, gle- <laughs> I can't even say it, clean and green uh, energy and technology and, and its and its use within that budget?
3: Yeah. Well, I, I think the federal budget that we saw yesterday is probably the most important federal budget uh, ever with respect to electricity and for addressing climate change. I think that the 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 good news in all of this is really the the sort of the, the the winner coming out of this is going to be the electricity customer. We're heading into a a, a transition to more electrification, more green energy, uh, and the federal government has now finally put its its uh, its money where its mouth has been and it is, you know, bringing significant funding forward. The other really good uh, piece of news is their recognition that 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 green clean future includes a, a broad a swath of technology so it isn't just wind and solar it's going to be hydro it's going to be nuclear it's going to be carbon capture uh and so that's good news i think right across the country
0: so we see it uh, you know on the headlines within this budget and we understand uh, where we'll be going eventually uh, but how how is it you can you give us more of a concrete idea Francis, on how it's used In clean energy, like as far as the allocations, are these startup businesses or existing businesses that will be benefiting or a combination?
3: Yeah, no, that's a really good question Andy. And it's going to be a combination. Uh so there's so there's a a a wide range of instruments and a wide range of of different policies uh that they've introduced. Uh and some of them will be uh you know uh specifically for uh startups, for new technologies, but there's also uh you know things in there for uh you know established uh, players and a recognition that that All of these folks are going to be important. There's also a recognition that uh, it's going to be a public and a private partnership, so... So, you know, previously uh, in the fall, the federal government talked about investment tax credits. Uh, That didn't apply to publicly owned companies like large municipals and crown corporations and and Indigenous communities. And so this budget addresses that piece as well. So it's going to be, yes, the new startups. It's going to be the established players. It's going to be the public sector. It's going to be the private sector. It's going to be municipalities, and it's going to be Indigenous communities.
1: Don't you think, Francis, it's it's just a tough conversation because there's so many people who are having a, a tough time making ends meet right now, but at the same time, I think most Canadians agree we need to be focused on the environment and making sure that we have a planet as we move forward. But, you know, making those two things make sense together, it's a tough one when you see the Feds investing in so much clean energy, green energy, and so many people are having trouble buying groceries. You know what I mean?
3: Oh Sue, I know exactly what you mean, and and, and I, I think this actually does address uh, sort of a, another slice of this, and and that is these investments are going to make things more affordable. Uh, for the electricity uh, customer. And so that's been one of our concerns with respect to the commitments that have been made with respect to our you know, GHG uh, greenhouse gas reductions is um, we want it to be reliable, we want it to be clean, but it's got to be affordable for uh, the end customer as well. And so like the electricity customer shouldn't have to pay all of the costs of uh, uh, greening the entire Canadian economy from now to 2050, and so what? What this budget is doing is it's bringing some public money and a recognition that 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 all of this doesn't have to be on the backs of electricity customers.
0: Okay, when you when you say this, and I'm I'm not expecting you to have the answer, but can you give us kind of a, a guesstimate on on when? kind of a time frame when you would see these savings because you mentioned that it could, will save us money. I'm assuming we're not talking next week or next month. Are we talking months or years from now that we'll start to see the impact of that?
3: Yeah, we're, we're talking we're talking years. Uh, you, you, the, you know, the, the time it takes to build major projects. Uh, is measured in in years not in uh, unfortunately not in weeks and months it takes that 's one of the other things that the budget is uh, attempting to do is to make it easier to get things built but you know we 're talking about a, a, a more than doubling uh, of the electricity system across the country from now until two thousand and fifty uh, that 's a big job that 's going to take place over over a long period of time, and what we 're talking about is investments. Uh, in this budget over the next five to 10 years that will blunt the impact of those costs on the end customer over the long term. And so this this is a long-term play. It's not a short-term play. Um, but, you know, it is critical that, that we get to, uh, the, to to addressing that. Now, we're in a world where we're seeing uh, increasing extreme weather, uh, you know, the frequency and the severity of, of that weather caused by climate change means we need to be moving and we need to be moving uh, today. But, yeah, in terms of the, the impact on people's bills, this is really to to uh, blunt the impact of major investments that are going to be required over the next generation.
1: Francis, I'm curious, your thoughts as the CEO of Electricity Canada. Was there anything that you had hoped to see in the budget that wasn't there or other uh, way around? Yeah,
3: no. Um, the, the one thing that I really would have liked to have seen, and I think it's something that we may see in the coming months, and, and that is, just a clearly articulated Canadian electricity strategy. I think we have all of the elements uh, uh present in this budget and in you know last the last fall economic statement and, and other actions that the government has put together but we'd like to see a clear articulation so that so that uh, we uh, everybody has a clear understanding in terms of what that pathway is going to look like from now to the 2035 commitment to have a net zero electricity system and in 2050 for the economy as a whole so yeah the thing that, that i would have liked to have seen would have been that articulation of specifically this is the canadian electricity strategy. This is what we can all get behind. I think all the pieces are there. It just needs to be stitched together.
0: Thanks for your time. Thanks for your breakdown, Francis. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's Francis Bradley, CEO, Electricity Canada. You can find out more about what he and his organization do at electricity.ca.
1: We are 399 days into the war between Russia and Ukraine and now Russia is planning to station nuclear weapons in neighbouring Belarus. Is this an escalation in the conflict? Should we be concerned about the use of nukes and even the discussion surrounding them once again? Joining us to talk about it is our friend Andrew Rasulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for being with us again.
4: Good morning, Sue and Andy.
1: Boy, 399 days into this conflict. Uh, what are we hearing now in terms of nuclear weaponry? And is it time to start to get worried?
4: Okay, the nuclear weaponry thing is, uh, is the Russians making the point yet again that they are a nuclear superpower. And uh, they have said this many times. They were saying it again last week. Uh, nuclear superpowers are, do not get defeated, not existentially. And Medvedev, their security council chief, said specifically last week that Russia is prepared to use any and all of their nuclear forces to defend Russia's interests. And then he went specifically related that to Crimea. So this is not new. But what the Russians are once again reaffirming, as the Ukrainians may be preparing their spring offensive, in fact they are preparing a spring offensive, is they're laying the groundwork saying that should the Ukrainian offensive be dramatically successful, should it threaten Crimea, as Ukrainians have said, they would like to liberate Crimea. And the Russians are saying no. This is existentially key to Russia. And the deployment of the, uh, the tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus under the State U- Union agreement thing uh, suggests that the Russians are simply positioning their pieces on the chessboard in this nuclear deterrent Exercise, if you will. But this is nuclear deterrence. This is to dissuade, not to attack. So what the bottom line, Russians are saying, don't touch Crimea. Mm. That's really the line. And if Crimea were to be touched, the Russians are saying, there might be a nuclear war. Gotcha.
0: Okay, that's where we're sitting there on that situation, Andrew. Uh, Let's talk 400 days in, basically, to the conflict. Do we know any kind of, a, even if it's ballpark, casualty count on on both sides for the russian military and for the ukrainian people and military
4: yeah so the the we do not know so i can give you uh guesstimates they're wild and they're out there well they're not that wild they're they're kind of reasonable um the number two hundred thousand comes to mind uh as a casualty not death we we really do not have a figure on deaths versus injuries but casualties, so therefore people taken out of the battlefield one way or the other. Uh, roughly 200,000, probably a bit more on the Russian side, uh, than the Ukrainian side, but one should not underestimate the fact that the Ukrainians have also lost a lot of, uh, forces. Um, there, there's been a lot of secrecy around the Ukrainian casualties, uh, and more, and more open discussion from the Western sources on, uh, Russian casualties, like particularly from the intelligence side. So we know that the Russians have got huge casualties, roughly 200,000, but so have the Ukrainians. You can say this has been a war of attrition that has impacted significantly both sides.
1: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the tanks, the large weaponry that has been sent to Ukraine from Germany, from Britain, from Canada even. Is it having or will it have? Have we seen any impact in the war effort from that yet?
4: It is happening, but there's no impact yet because the, uh, these uh, pieces of equipment, uh, the, the tanks, the artillery uh... the infantry fighting vehicles they they all have to work together they're a part of a combat team and they are arriving on sea in fact the canadian tanks for sure are in poland when they cross into ukraine i don't think we'll know about it um... but uh... so but what the ukrainians now are doing is building up uh... units that integrate these uh... these uh, these weapon systems and then prepare those units for the upcoming offensive operations so we will only see the effect of these systems uh, in an offensive operation sometime this spring. The Ukrainians are really keeping a lid, uh, as they should, uh, on the timing. This is a secret. Uh, so uh, we only hear things like the spring offensive. When that offensive takes place, and we don't know when it will take place or where it will take place, but it will likely be at the choosing of the Ukrainians to try to punch a hole in the Russian line. The Ukrainians will not have sufficient forces uh, to actually conduct a major offensive across the entire Russian line. Rather, they will choose an area, probe through, punch through, and and in likelihood threaten Crimea. So that would suggest an attack in the south. But I don't want to predict that. I'm just saying this is postulations.
0: Speaking with Andrew Rasoulis, a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs, uh, looks like, at, at this point, Finland is a step closer to NATO membership. Do we anticipate their application and membership to be approved and, and how will the uh, Russians uh, react to this?
4: Yeah, Finland, Finland the, the Turks have, uh, have relented, so they, there is an agreement there. And Finland, Finland will join. Sweden is still um, out there. The church still have issues uh, with the Swedes on the Kurds issue. Um, the Russians have been fairly benign on that. Um, I don't think the, the Russians have not made huge noises. They've said that they will, if, if Finland, well, now it's going to be when Finland joins, uh, the Russians will take what they call appropriate military measures that correspond to Finland's measures. So basically, if the Finns do nothing, if they join and then do nothing... The Russians will probably do nothing because they have a huge border with Finland. On the other hand, you know, if you see, like, American forces being stationed in Finland, well, I think the Russians will, will beef up their forces and they'll do something. They may bring up tactical nuclear weapons up there, do something like that. So the Russians are going to react to the Finns and NATO and that. But so far, the Russians have been fairly uh, benign in their response. They don't really see the Finns as a major issue uh, or a threat to Russia right now
1: will ukraine ever be a member of nato uh
4: that's unlikely not impossible but unlikely the most um, the most prevalent speculation is that uh whenever this war ends uh with some form of a more likely a ceasefire rather than a political agreement but there might be one one day and that uh ukraine would receive security guarantees on a bilateral basis from certain countries, like from NATO countries, but not as an alliance as a whole. Uh, the idea of bringing Ukraine into NATO would require um, a unanimity of all the alliance members, which, uh, which is probably unlikely to occur, uh, particularly NATO putting itself in the position of a potential war with Russia, because this would only be considered when there was a ceasefire and an end to the conflict. But that would be a very unstable situation. That's the best we can hope for, is a demilitarized zone, highly unstable but nevertheless people not shooting at each other so my answer long answer to you is unlikely not impossible unlikely but security guarantees more likely bilaterally
0: andrew what do we know about the climate within russia right now the russian people and perhaps the support or lack thereof for uh, vladimir putin where are we at with that
4: yeah so well so the bottom line putin remains firmly in charge his uh, political challenge is not so much from uh, the, the liberals, if you will, or the Democrats. Uh, Navalny's in prison. He, he, uh, the, those, the people who support Navalny are still a very um, a notable minority within Russia. We hear about them, but they're still a minority. They're not a political threat directly under the current circumstances. But the problem for Putin is the right on the right side, the nationalists, the Russian nationalists, uh, even Pekorshin, the guy who's leading the mercenary group, the Wagner group, he's tried, he's making noises. He's, he's suggesting that he might be running against Putin in the 2024 presidential election. You know, so this is where the threats are. And if you look at the Russian media space, it's, it's, and it's semi-official, of course. It's all about criticism of Putin for not doing enough in the war, not winning the war, not there's no one uh, saying, notably saying, stop the war and pull out of Ukraine. There is, zero, there is near zero political uh, 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 voices in Russia saying that at the public level. Yes, you'll find individuals, but not in any significant political movement.
1: You're so knowledgeable, Andrew. Thanks for always sharing your take on things with us. Appreciate your time this morning.
4: My pleasure. Great to talk to you. um, at such an early hour for you.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much. That is Andrew Azoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs.